When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I grew up with this very, very hyper-awareness, not just of the Holocaust, but of the very present reality of being Jewish in America. A true indication of equality will be when diverse writers, and I don't just mean talking about race, but in terms of sexuality and, and, and so on, don't have to specifically just write about, you know, just because I am a, a writer of colour doesn't mean I have to write about sort of, you know, growing up in 80s Yorkshire when, you know, there was racism, things like that. You know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't mean that I just have to write about that. I should be able to write about being an air traffic controller. I unionized the cast. I went to the cast and I said, listen, I'm being advised to go and renegotiate for more money. How about we all go in together and I'll take less so everyone can come up. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, the podcast that goes behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. I'm Samira Ahmed and in this podcast I ask how did writers, politicians and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators. And today is a particularly special episode as we have not one but two voices. And joining me from New York is David Schwimmer, the twice Emmy nominated actor. And in London we have Nick Mohammed, the Leeds-born comedian and actor and writer and co star with David of the Sky One comedy Intelligence, set in the British government's security and intelligence headquarters, what we used to call GCHQ. I didn't realise it's not called that anymore. And it's currently on its second series. David Schwimmer starred as Ross in all 236 episodes of Friends, one of the most successful and acclaimed sitcoms in TV history. It's been captivating a new generation of viewers long after its original 10-year run, which ended in 2004. And his film and TV roles have shown an impressive aptitude for both comedy and serious drama. His two Emmy nominations came, one for Friends and one for his role as Robert Kardashian in the American crime story drama The People vs. O.J. Simpson. We'll be talking about all of these things. Uh, David's also become something I think it's fair to say of an honorary Brit, championing filmmaking in the UK, notably in intelligence, and we want to talk about that partnership too. So welcome, Nick and David. Hello. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I never know how you feel when someone says 236 episodes, but anyway, say that Exhausted. <laughs> I want to start, like I always do, by taking you both back to your childhoods 
And it's particularly interesting because it's a decade apart. David, you were growing up in the 70s, Nick in the 80s and 90s. So what were Mini David and then Mini Nick like? Mini David was, I think, a really happy kid. I was really close to my older sister, Ellie. We were just about a little over a year apart. My parents were both working lawyers, but very present parents. Um, and I was, I would describe myself as very, I was very happy, very hyperactive, very physical, very, what they would probably, <laughs> uh, probably diagnose me with like ADD today, but I was, I was uncontrollable energy and uh, enthusiasm, I guess. So yeah, I, I would say in a nutshell, that was mini, mini David. And born in New York, when did you move to LA? Yeah, born in Queens, New York. When I was about two years old, my parents, who were native New Yorkers, born and raised Brooklyn and Queens, you know, they had the courage to follow their hearts and and leave all of their very close family, their their parents, their aunts and uncles, all my grandparents, my great aunts and uncles, and my aunts and uncles, we left everyone and moved to Los Angeles where they were pursuing opportunities as, as young lawyers. Luckily, I would go back many times, around twice a year, if at least, to see all those relatives who played a big part in, in our lives growing up. So Nick, Leeds, I think, in the uh, 80s is where you start. What's Mini Nick? Mini story? Nick, gosh, I, I like David's description of probably would have been diagnosed with ADD. I, po- possibly, I'm, I might have as well. I was quite, I, I think I was probably like a bit much sometimes. I was really into magic from a very young age, from when I was about four years old. And so, you know, I would bother family and friends to, you know, pick a card and show them pretty naff tricks and I think so I was probably a little bit precocious in that respect but but a very a very happy child I knew from a quite a young age that I really enjoyed making people laugh you know whether whether I was sort of genuinely funny or whether they were just sort of humoring me I think is uh, much much to be debated but yeah uh, I you know I went went to you know very normal primary school and, and secondary school in Leeds they're both retired now but my mum was a GP it's quite funny because she was do- the doctor to some of my friends. In fact, my best friend from from home, uh, he, she was their family doctor, which is always quite quite amusing. And <laughs> my dad had a few jobs when we were growing up, but he he sort of settled in 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 sort of like legal profession and was a solicitor for a good while. When he, and you know he's now retired as well. But yeah, I was I didn't know that I was kind of going to go into comedy or a- acting at the time, but I definitely had a had a you know a passion for 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 performing and. I guess maybe slightly being the center of attention. And um, yeah, music was quite a big part of my life when I was growing up as well. I played piano and violin. I have very, very fun memories. And obviously I haven't been back home for a while because of the, the pandemic, but I, you know, I love going back to Leeds and, and yeah, very, very fond memories. It's interesting that you both had lawyers in the parental sort of setup. And David, I mean, the sense of social justice that came through them, I think was very important to you. Yeah, uh, still is. Uh, it was really formative growing up. My parents were activists and progressives and a lot of early memories on picket lines with them and seeing feminist theater that my mom was in. And oh, bless. <laughs> I was thinking about this recently in a conversation with, with a friend of mine, but I was born just two years after the murder of these three civil rights workers, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, two of whom were Young New York Jews uh, looked a lot like me, and they were my parents' age, you know, when I was born. So I grew up in this with this very, very 
hyper-awareness, not just of the Holocaust, but of the very present reality of being Jewish in America and anti-Semitism. And that, you know, when you grow up with that kind of awareness that uh, you are other and that your life is literally at stake or at, at je in jeopardy in different parts of your own country, in your own backyard, I think it informs your worldview uh, in a huge way. So that idea of, of seeing any kind of injustice with any person of color or any kind of discrimination was really profound as a young person and kind of carried, carried through. I know seeing live performance can often be a big breakthrough moment for people who go on to become performers themselves. And David, I think for you, being taken to the theatre to see, was it Ian McKellen at 13? Yeah. Well, my parents had a love of theatre and every year we would, on one of our, or both our trips back east to see family, we would make a point to see as many plays and shows as possible. You know, I remember a couple of trips, we would see like five shows within a six-day trip. I was always going to theater, but my parents took me to see Ian McKellen's one man acting Shakespeare in uh, Westwood, in like one of the UCLA small theaters in Westwood. I was 13 years old and I was completely mesmerized. And it was, you know, Nick talks about magic. I also was a, a fan of magic growing up as a kid. The magic that Ian McKellen, like the magic trick that he did of transforming himself without any props or costume changes into 25 of the greatest Shakespeare roles written, men, women of different you know, sizes, shapes. I, I was absolutely awestruck. And I thought, I have to do that magic trick. I have to learn how to do that. So yeah, I, I, was, I was really bitten by the bug quite early. And Nick, I was wondering with you, you know, one, there was a huge theatre and live performing scene in all those great old theatres around, you know, Leeds mm. and Yorkshire. Um, but also Magic, I think, had a real growth. There were all those people like kind of Penn and Teller and David Blaine who were kind of quite huge celebrities by the, uh, by the 90s. What were you watching on stage? Yeah, Magic sort of had a real kind of golden age, I guess, kind of going through the late 80s with the Paul Daniels Magic show. And then, yeah, completely with the more slightly more modern stuff or modern at that time, you know, with the street magic of David Blaine and some of the stuff that was coming through from the States, like Penn and Teller, the David Copperfield specials and so on. In terms of like live magic, I mean, I, I saw a lot of live, live stuff. Yeah, the West Yorkshire Playhouse. I remember seeing magic shows at the Grand and the Alhambra in Bradford. There was still, I guess, a lot of performers who had, I suppose, cut their teeth at the, the working men's clubs in the sort of 70s and sort of kind of going into the 80s you know, who had a real kind of stock in trade kind of act, but who would frequently, you know, do all, all the pantos up north or, or, you know, have their own shows and with some international supporting acts. And so, yeah, I got to see a lot of stuff through, similar to, to Shrim, you know, my, my parents didn't hold back in terms of we would be taken to, you know, as many things as we could or we could afford at the time. I remember seeing such a mixture of things as well, from musicals to Shakespeare to opera to magic shows and I would always sort of take something or try try and take something away from 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 all of them. I remember seeing Paul Daniels a few times when I was growing up live, and he, even as recent as seeing the Darren Brown's first live show, which was back in two thousand, I think, or maybe even just before then, a, a good sized theatre, but not a massive massive theatre in in Bradford. I think St George's Hall it was maybe, and just been completely blown away. I'd never seen yeah. that kind of branch of magic or mentalism sort of performed in that in that kind of honest way that, you know, is sort of his brand now. Yeah, it's wonderful to see that stuff. And I was 
jumping ahead to make a connection, but when you talk about the magic of seeing Ian McKellen do all those Shakespeare characters, you did a one-person Tempest, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that is that? Do you think that's the seed of it? Yeah, I mean, I I I was l- very lucky in the high school I went to. They had a really strong theater program, and I was introduced to Shakespeare at a young age. Uh, you know, seeing Ian McKellen and my parents were big fans of Shakespeare, and so there was this uh, this competition. And I'm I'm very competitive um, <laughs> naturally, so. Um, I just saw your eyes go staring. Yeah, no, I, Nick knows it. I like about anything. Oh, yeah. I'm intensely competitive <laughs> and I love games and sports and all that stuff. So anyway, there was this Shakespeare festival in Southern California of all the high schools in Southern California would compete against each other in two categories, an individual category where you would represent your school or a, a scene, a group category of like four or five actors doing scenes from anyway. I cut together my own individual Tempest where I played Prospero, Ariel, and Caliban. And I did this really physical thing that Nick would probably be genius at. But transforming yourself at different levels, Caliban on the ground, Ariel above, and Prospero, you know, whatever. And I ended up winning first place, you know, in the competition. And the greatest moment of that that I didn't know until you won was you get to repeat and do your scene again in front of all the schools um, on the main stage. And I think doing that at age like 14, you know, was hugely formative because, you know, it was just this big thing of approval. It was like, you, you hope you're good, but when you win something like that, you feel like, oh, okay, I should maybe keep doing this because others are enjoying it. And was there a particular teacher for drama at your school? Yeah, Andy Grenier uh, was my high school acting teacher that also later uh, introduced me to Grotowski and, and a lot of other... This is a method, is it? Yeah, very, very physical theatre method and philosophy. And that was hugely formative in, in terms of then bringing that to Northwestern and introducing a, a different kind of style and process that would eventually lead to a formation of a whole theatre company later. We'll come to university next, but I'm fascinated, Nick, as well, because teachers, or certainly a teacher, had an impact on you at yeah. school. <laughs> yes. I, I sort of, I, I, it sort of got to the point now where I feel I should just name them, but I've, I've kind of protected their identity. So now, I mean, I'll be very honest, I don't even know if this person is, is, still, is still alive. You know, we, she taught us English when I was doing my GCSEs. So yeah, so we were like 15, uh, but she left. I think she either went to a different school or something, but um, she left sort of halfway through our GCSEs, but she made an incredible impact. And partly because, I mean, she was genuinely such a character and, and it, it is, you know, it informed the character that I often do on stage, Mr. Swallow, which is just this opinionated, quite camp individual. So Mr. Swallow, what do you think of the National Theatre now broadcasting a lot of their work in cinemas? Complete waste of time. I think, just because if you want to go to the theatre, go to the theatre. If you want to go to the cinema, go to the cinema. <laughs> Don't do both. And to be honest, you've got a choice. Just go to the cinema because it's better. <laughs> Let's go around and say the first word that comes into our heads. Disease. About the play. All right. Effectively, she was sort of using her position as a teacher 
as a platform to just sort of just spout views about literally kind of anything and everything. And, you know, if you... It's a bit Miss Jean Brody. I mean, there's a long heritage, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. And I remember, you know, some of the stuff... She once walked into a class, the classroom and was like, right, we're going to do a debate. And, you know, sort of, we're only doing sort of English language or something. And we're like, oh, OK. And, you know, she wanted to do a whole debate about capital punishment. And she strongly... She was a strong advocate of capital punishment. And we were sat there, even at that age, thinking, well, I don't... You know, I, don't, I think the debate's maybe slightly more nuanced than that. And she, you know, she would have a go at us if we if we disagreed with her point of view. But she was she kind of she just had this sort of amazing sort of attitude. And I don't know, I just sort of ended up using sort of do, doing impressions of her at school. And as I became a student and started doing comedy gigs and so on, it kind of crept into uh, my uh, repertoire or whatever. You know, I just started doing that voice yeah. for comic effect. And so yeah, it was, she she was an incredible inspiration. But I uh, I shouldn't really name her because you know I don't know she might not see it as an homage. <laughs> She might see it. It'd be like um, that Carly Simon thing, you know, who is the person who's so vain? It's like, who is Mr. Swan? (laughs) (laughs) And I want to ask you both, but Nick Firth, the role of university then. Nick, you went to Durham initially to read geophysics and then started a a PhD in seismology, studying earthquakes at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. What what happened at university in terms of you becoming, you know, the, the performer and the writer and the... The creative you are. I, I, as, as much as I did, you know, a lot of magic when I was growing up, I still wasn't, I, I was, I was kind of confident in one particular way, but I wasn't really kind of, I didn't, you know, I wasn't sort of experienced or kind of wise. And I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And in some respects, I think academia can feel quite an easy option in that respect because you're effectively told what to do. You know, I, I went through, you know, primary school, secondary school, did sixth form. And then you know, I thought, well, I'll do, I'll go to university. And then you know, I kind of decided to do that PhD because I didn't really know where, where else to, to, to go and sort of thought, well, I'll just keep on sort of doing what I'm, I, you know, I have been doing. And and whilst I was at Durham, I knew that I enjoyed comedy and certainly seeing it and, you know, listening to it and watching it on, on television and so on. And and there was the student uh, sort of comedy group was the Durham Review. And they they only had auditions once a year. And, and I auditioned twice whilst at Durham and, and didn't, didn't get in. And so it didn't so much knock my confidence not in a huge way, but it just made me think, oh, well, maybe it's not really for me. But I still had kind of lots of ideas and I did I did the odd little gig whilst in Durham. But it was it was when I went to Cambridge and the, the Cambridge Footlights being, you know, the equivalent sort of student comedy group. What what was brilliant about the Footlights certainly then was that they, I think even still now, actually, but compared to Durham at the time was that they did, um, you know, review shows every two weeks as opposed to once a term. And, you know, you could effectively audition every two weeks. And so I just, you know, I remember thinking, well, you know, just presented so many more opportunities. And I I guess having had that period at Durham where I'd sort of been sort of frustrated at maybe not really having the outlet to sort of perform comedy, suddenly there was there was far more opportunities to do so at Cambridge and, 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 and it took off a little bit from there, yeah. What about for you, David? Because you did a theatre degree at Northwestern and it struck me because I, I was that generation, you know, watched Friends from the beginning and watched, you know, all your films. And I was really struck with intelligence, you know, the sitcom you've done together, how technically skilled you are. You know, there's timing, there's physical movement, there's little moments of expression. And I remember thinking, is that going back to the degree? Yeah, it's a combination of the degree at Northwestern and the training there, but also Since I was 13 years old, every opportunity I had to take extracurricular theater and summer camp and training, I took. So uh, whether it's clown school or I went to the British America Drama Academy at Oxford, uh, where Brian Cox and Rosemary Harris were two of my teachers. So I always 
was fascinated with physical comedy and, and the kind of the training and the dance and the movement that, that really went, went hand in hand with it. So I tried to train everything and just acquire as many skills as I could and stage combat, every, everything, you know, Northwestern really provided a, a really strong foundation there as well as these other supplemental opportunities. I feel I've been waiting 25 years to ask you if you had done something like clown school. Just as I say, even in intelligence, the way that you throw yourself across a desk, but it's a fall and it looks like an accident. I just find that kind of physical ability. It's not something some people ever learn. And you were trained in it years ago. Yeah. And, and I um, kind of developed my own process. So uh, because it, it really is, for me, it's quite specific, quite choreographed. And because in order to do it over and over again, you want to not be hurt every time you do it. <laughs> so you want to, but you have to sell it as Nick knows, you have to sell it in a way, whether it's stage combat, the same thing. No one, you know, no one ever wants to actually get hurt. It's just practice. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned they're not getting hurt because I thought as one gets older as well, it really matters to do that well. What are you saying? Um. <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment when you're both in the same country, which is, David, did you bring a university show to Edinburgh Fringe Festival? Yeah. So at Northwestern, I had always directed, even in high school, I was directing. And when I, I got to Northwestern, I really wanted to direct this one very physical production, again, kind of based in Grotowski, but this adult version of Alice in Wonderland in which six actors transformed themselves and played every character in the two books, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, with only one actress playing Alice the entire time. It's kind of a grown-up, sophisticated version of the adaptation of the two books combined. And it was first done by Andre Gregory and the Manhattan Project in, I think, the 70s. But I really wanted to do this and direct it at Northwestern. But I was told I hadn't taken the requisite directing course with this one director who I just hated his work. I just thought he was trash. So I thought this is completely illogical. Why do I have to take directing? Why do I have to study directing from him? I've been directing, you know, I was very full of myself, but um, I'd been directing since I was 13. I don't like his work. I don't see why I have to do this. So, but they refused to give me a space or support me directing this play. I said, fine, I'll use my bar mitzvah money, which I had saved. And I produced it. I found a theater off campus and I cast the show among, you know, actors that I loved and respected. And I just produced it off campus. It became a really big hit and kind of like the hot thing to see, you know, off campus. And it was successful on top of that. And I produced it as well as directed it. And I made money. And I was like, okay. So I, being pretty, as we've established, arrogant and, and big headed, I went to the dean of the School of Speech and I said, hey, you know, I just produced this play off campus. I've heard about this international theater festival in Scotland called the Edinburgh Festival. And I think you should send me and the cast to Edinburgh, to the festival to represent Northwestern and the city of Chicago. <laughs> like that. I was so, you know, I was 20 years old. I didn't know what. I, but to his credit, he said to me, how much does it cost? And I'd done the budget. It was $10,000. And he said, if if you raise half of it, I'll match it. 
And I was like, done. And so I got in touch with Second City and I, they gave me a, uh, their space for free and I produced- This, this is the famous comedy club in Chicago. Yeah, and I, I produced uh, a, a shortened version, like benefit performance to send us to Scotland. And sure enough, we raised five grand and he kept his word. And that summer we were in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival where I got to see Stephen Burkhoff's play West the first time it was produced. And that play blew my mind. And I then spent the next 10 years trying to produce that in Chicago with my company, which he finally granted us the rights to do. But this is the Looking Glass company that you set yeah. up, and which is still, of course, going. But that experience of producing, traveling to that festival, seeing all that theater from all over the world and all over, particularly all over the UK, the comedy, seeing everything, it was and producing it successfully, like again, was one of those formative events that told me, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. Nick, you know, we know Edinburgh Fringe is a kind of rite of passage mm. for anyone who wants to have a comedy career. And it's fascinating to see someone coming from the States. You went through it as well, presumably, with the Footlights at least. Very much so. Yeah, the first time I went there was, was with the Footlights and that was back in 2004. And then, and then the following... Gosh, and then many times over the I, years. Yeah, yeah, and then the following years I went every year. But yeah, I sort of then started doing every other year, 10, 12, 14, 20, 12, 2012. <laughs> not that old. <laughs> 18, 12, 18, 14, 18. Um, but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It is, it is, it's sort of where it, there's almost an etiquette, isn't there, that if you you know, if you want to pursue comedy, it's where, you know, you absolutely go there to road test your material. The industry pretty much heads up to Edinburgh over August, obviously not at the moment, sadly, but hopefully, if not this year, ne next year, it'll all kind of be coming back again. And, and you know, it's where you showcase your your year's worth of material and, you know, the whole industry heads up there to see what see what you're doing and what you've done. And can I say, Nick, you were robbed for at least a couple of, of nominations. I mean, I was reading all the reviews of your shows that you've taken to Edinburgh and, you know, everyone was talking about you. Oh. And, and I don't know, has it been frustrating that perhaps Edinburgh didn't give you the kind of break that some people have had when they've won, you know, what used to be the Perrier, say? I, I think I try not to kind of really get too concerned by those things. I mean, there are, there are so many ways in which you can, I guess, sort of have benchmarks in terms of how how well, you know, how well you feel you're doing in Edinburgh and whether that's to do with ticket sales or whether you're proud of the show or whether your parents have liked it or, you know, the, the press that you might get. And well, critics liked you. They raved about you and they said, why aren't you on? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, you know, I, and again, you've got to you got to try and take some of that with a pinch of salt. But but yeah, you know, listen, it, it's always nice to, to do a show where, you know, th there's nothing more, ha having more recently done more TV comedy, th there's something absolutely sort of delicious about doing something which feels quite frontline when you kind of put yourself on stage and you get that absolute immediate response from an audience and there is nowhere to hide. And you have to take, I guess, you know, the highs and lows. There's no one else you can blame apart from yourself. And with TV, you know, there is a process, there are scripts, there are other people who will want input into those scripts. And then there's the process of filming and an edit. Whereas on stage, you go on, and of course you, you prepare your material, but you go on yeah. there and you know immediately if the audience like you or don't. And, and when an audience do, it's like no other feeling. And, and you know, that, that is worth far more than, you know, any press or, or, or award nomination, I think. Can I ask you, Nick, first and then David, what was getting your first break like? What was it and what did it feel like? 
I don't, I don't know if I know what it is yet. Part, part of me feels like it could be intelligence. It, it could be Ted Lasso, and we're only filming the second season of that right now. Uh, Rojas. Ooh. Cross me, amigo. Right, you say that football is life, right? Football is life. Yeah, well, then your defence is death. Oh. The only person I've seen lose a man more often is Carrie F Bradshaw. Oh. There's, there's just been lots of little, little things. I, I, I've heard other people far more experienced than me talk about, you know, when they got their big break. And, and I think it's probably right to say that it's not always one single thing. And, and, and certainly for me, it feels like it was a combination of getting an agent, then getting a Radio 4 series, and then, you know, getting my first TV role, but, you know, not a lead role by any means, and then getting your first pilot script commission and things like that. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's absolutely been quite a, a slow and steady burn over the past 10 years. And only, I think only now do I sort of think, you know, and I still feel I've got tons to learn that, that, that maybe I can sort of think, okay, I could say this with some sense of authority, you know, you know, I could present a script and justify, well, this is why I've written it like this. And this is where I think the funny is, and this is how it should look. I only feel now, am I starting to kind of feel I have any kind of experience in, in, in that. So I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I know it's interesting because I could see a load of different points where you might say it, but it's how you feel about it. What about for you, David, because you did do a couple of roles in sitcoms, didn't you, before the one that we're going to talk about at some point? Yeah, actually, I consider, I guess my my break into on-camera work was more dramatic. I was doing some guest episodes on a show called L.A. Law, and then NYPD Blue was a four-episode arc where my character was inspired by this subway, a real story in New York, a subway vigilante, a guy who took justice into his own hands. And then the Wonder Years. So, uh, Mr. Arnold, how are things at North Plant, North Corp, North Fleet, North Com, North Com. That's, that's where you work, right? How are things there? Works work. There were a couple of things that followed each other rather quickly in terms of some recurring roles, but I, I kind of look back on NYPD Blue as this, which was a dramatic story and a dramatic character as my break, really. Although like Nick, I don't think we we're going to wait for that. We both kind of were starting to take control of our own careers. He as a writer and performer and me as starting a theater company as, you know, directing and acting. I don't think we were going to just hang around and wait for someone to hopefully find us. We were going to, like, get after it, you know. When did you do your production of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle at the Looking Glass Theatre Company you set up? I feel like that was 1990, maybe two years after I graduated. Yeah, that was one of our, our big productions. I had adapted this book, The Jungle, by Upton Sinclair and directed it. And it was a, our entire company on stage and then some. Ladies and gentlemen and immigrants of most ages, welcome to the meatpacking industry that made Chicago famous. The stinking, seething vista you see stretched before you covers over one square mile of one of the world's greatest cities, sending 10,000 kettle Ooh. and 20,000 hogs oh. to their unsuspecting deaths each and every day. It's no family butcher business, baby. It's big, big, big. So take a look, breathe it in, because pickled, canned, or corned, if it used to be alive, we probably killed it right here. Yay! It was a big epic 
dramatic, you know, production about the Chicago, the story of immigration, really. It's a story of immigrants landed in Chicago from Lithuania. Exploitation of workers, of course, in the meat canning industry. Yeah, exploitation, really, of workers and the corrupt system. And it's really also the the story of the rise of unions in this country. There was a social justice component to that. And then a, a lot of the work, actually, I was involved in starting that company were stories that had some kind of message, you know, but hopefully told in a very theatrical and entertaining way as well. They had to be good, but, you know, there was always an agenda. But it's no secret that you originally turned down the part of Ross Geller. And I wonder what was your thinking? How did you feel about the world of sitcoms, thinking that it's four years from Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and your own theatre company to the start of Friends? Yeah, well, I had been lucky enough to be be cast in my first regular series role, which is a big deal for a young actor, a year before Friends, right? It it was a show with um, this incredible actor, Henry Winkler, who I love and adore. And I was playing his son in this sitcom. Uh, Gina's been teaching me vegetarian cooking, and uh, I really enjoy it. It's, uh, it's utilitarian in a, uh, in a Thoreauian sense. What was that word? You know, uh, Thoreauian, uh, of or about Thoreau. Used in a sentence, uh, you Thoreauian like a girl. <laughs> But the show was not good, and although he was terrific and everyone on there was lovely, but more importantly, the the writers did not embrace my ideas. Um, they didn't make me feel like my ideas were welcome. They, I felt I was basically kind of told, just say the line, just, just do what we say. And, and I felt kind of like a prop, and it was... I, you know, I guess that experience really turned me off to television because I felt in that time trapped. You know, when, in those situations, you had to sign for five. Now it's six years. You have to sign six years. So they own you. And it does feel like you're, you know, you're, you're owned by the network or you know, whoever. And I was so relieved when that show was canceled after filming 12 episodes. And luckily... We made 12 episodes, only a few of which were aired, but we made 12. So I got to bank some money and I said, I'm out of here. I moved back to Chicago and I say, I got money in my bank. I'm going back to Chicago and doing theater. Forget TV. I'm not going to sign up for another six, you know, five or six years and risk being in that situation where I was so unhappy and uninspired and unappreciated. That's, I was doing theater in Chicago. I was on stage doing a play with my company when, you know, the offer came in to do Friends. We're going to go on a quick break now and we can argue whether it was or wasn't a break later on in the podcast. Stay with us. What I really admired, and actually it's like going back to your Upton Sinclair thing, over the years, watching as that sitcom grew and its popularity grew, how as a group, the six leads on Friends seem to operate together. 
as a kind of union. And it seemed to suggest a change to the power balance of TV and the opposite of your, what your experience had been on that other sitcom. Could you give some insight into how you did operate? I unionized the cast. I mean, <laughs> I mean, very simply, we were six actors who had not known each other before the show started. We were all making very different salaries at the, in the first year of Friends. For whatever reason, and we've all had our shining moment uh, as actors on that show, for whatever reason, the first year I was kind of the, I don't know, the breakout. Oh, okay, I tell you what, how about if I cook dinner at my place? I'll make it just like mom's. Will you make the mashed potatoes with the lumps? <laughs> you know they're not actually supposed to. I'll work on the lumps. <laughs> well, I'm off to Carol's. Oh, oh, why don't we invite her? Ooh, ooh, because she's my ex-wife and will probably want to bring her ooh, ooh, lesbian life partner. We were all equal stars, but I was aware, my agent made me aware that I was the breakout and I could go back and was being encouraged by my agent to renegotiate for more money. Because you got nominated for an Emmy, didn't you? Around that point, 95. I think so. I don't, yeah. I don't remember the timeline. It line, was but very early on. My, my, my agent was like, now's the time you go and renegotiate for more money. You know, this is your moment. And I was like, well, I didn't like the idea, being who I was and how I was raised, of coming to work and making more than the other five actors. We're all there for the same amount of time. We're all giving 100%. And this is a true ensemble. So I went to the cast and I said, listen, I'm being advised to go and renegotiate for more money. How about we all go in together and I'll take less so everyone can come up and we'll all be making the same. And we just agree now, every decision we make, we'll make together as a union, <laughs> as a group. And everyone will always make the same amount of money on this show. So no one will ever resent the other actors. Matthew Perry <laughs> said to me, okay, idiot. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> but it worked. And, it, you know, that combined with the, frankly, the experience that the six of us were going through, that the only other people could possibly understand the emotional roller coaster and the terror of sudden celebrity and all that. The only other people that understood really what you were going through were those other five people. So those things helped solidify after year one, a very, very tight bond. Can I ask about the difference then? Because when you came to work with Nick on intelligence, you know, you brought obviously the knowledge having been in that and having been on one of the biggest sitcoms in history. But people often talk in Britain, and Nick, you'll know this, that, oh, in America, it's so much better. They have big teams of writers. They have 26 episodes, whereas in Britain, you're lucky to get six. And all the weight is on that one person who's writing it, who might, like in your case, also be, be starring in it. And I just wonder what your experiences are of the cultural differences, having, in your case, David, worked obviously on both sides, but Nick, having watched the American experience, but lived the British one. It's funny because I, I think that even you know back back then there were plenty of British shows which were hugely enjoyed in the states, and likewise plenty of shows in the states that were enjoyed here. You know, notably Friends, of course. Only now am I really kind of opening my eyes to to the differences in terms of the process. 
you know, the writer's room thing is a big thing in the States and, and less so over here. It, interestingly, it's it's definitely kind of catching on here. And I, I think certainly with the, the birth of more and more streaming platforms, there are so many more opportunities for content that, you know, writer's rooms are, are sometimes the only way that those shows can, can, can be created because, you know, there isn't a sort of a single writer who can then just sort of just go away and relatively quickly write 12 hours of television, you know, in, in two months or whatever. So the processes are, 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 are different. I've, I've never experienced the writer's room process myself. I've written with Julia Davis before, which is it's, you know, a specific writing relationship and a, and a wonderful one, but, but very kind of unique to, to working with, with Julia. With intelligence, it's, you know, I, I write it, but it's, it's deeply collaborative. And, you know, from David, you know, being on board from, you know, the original page outline that I might have sent him, you know, we've, we've, we've discussed backstory, we break down scene by scene, beat by beat, not just the series arc or particular characters' journeys, but, you know, when we're on set, specific scenes. And so as much as I am the writer on that show, I feel very, very supported. And, you know, to be able to, like, lean into David's experience in particular, having worked on, you know, one of the best sitcoms in the world ever, you know, you know, I feel very, very lucky. But, yeah, it's it's funny to find myself in that position in a way. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of, you know, those those American shows and... They're so mathematical as well in there, you know, they, 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 the gag rate and the, you know, the amount of story that they can pack in in such a short amount of time. And they're, they're hugely inspirational in that respect. I just don't think it's going to fit. Oh, yeah, Will, come on, up, 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 up. <laughs> yes. Here we go. Pivot. Pivot. David as well thinking back to you know the fact that you you thought you didn't like sitcoms but you took friends why no, was that no, different that... or you didn't like the experience you'd had on the previous one sorry yeah it's not that I didn't like sitcoms I, I have always loved sitcoms and lo a huge fan of television comedy it, it was just that the the experience as an actor on that was so I just didn't want to do it again because and feel trapped or signed for, you know, that someone owned me for five years. I just didn't like that feeling. Why did Friends feel different? Why did you go for it? Because I, I was convinced to meet with Marta, David and Kevin. What they told me was that, I, and what I didn't realize was that a year before Friends got picked up as a pilot, um, I mean, to make the pilot, I had auditioned for them. I went to network for them on another show they wrote, and it was down to me and two other guys, one of whom was my good friend from high school, Johnny Silverman, and he got the role. I didn't get cast, but they remembered, they remembered my voice and my, I guess, my interpretation of that character, and they wrote Ross with me in mind. So I didn't know any of this until I flew out to LA to meet with them. They said, listen, it's an ensemble show. There's no star. We promise to be collaborative. We want to hear your ideas, your thoughts. We wrote this with you in mind because of your audition. You came in for us a year ago. And I was like, this sounds too good to be true. And, and it was. It was too good to be true. They kept their word. It was collaborative from beginning to end. 
it, it, it was as much fun as I'm having with Nick on, on intelligence because of the collaboration. That's what gets me going is that collaborative spirit. How does that work when, you, when you're talking about great collaboration, whether it's on Friends or it's with Nick? What, what are you describing? I'm describing a certain relationship between the writer and, or writers and actor in which there's a mutual respect and trust that I can elevate the material and I can take what the ideas, the great ideas that they have and take it to the next level. If you trust me and let me own it in a way and inhabit, you know, because I know the character and I might make choices that will surprise you. And when there's that mutual respect and trust, as Nick and I have as well, it's better than either of you, like, could have come up on your own. You know, that's what it is. You're, you're, you're just, you find a working relationship that elevates the material or elevates your performance because they can see something you can't and they can, you know, write to you um, and your character. I mean, obviously, they're two very different shows because we had the pressure, you know, we would rehearse a one-act play every week and then we would perform it in front of a live audience and there were, you know, changes on the spot because the audience maybe wouldn't get the joke as much as it wouldn't land. So we'd have to come up with something on the spot. But throughout the week, I'd be pitching and the other actors would be pitching other jokes, other moments, other beats, and also work it out dramatically, saying, this isn't feeling right. It's not landing in a way. So we'd have a whole week of rehearsal to, f- to figure it out. And then the true kind of the arbiter, you know, would be the audience. You know, they would say whether they liked it or not, or they it, something landed with them emotionally or not. With Nick, with Nick and I, it's the same spirit of real collaboration, but we don't have the luxury of an audience. We have to be the arbiters, <laughs> as, along with our wonderful producers and director, Matt, to really figure out and trust that, that this works, that it's funny, that it, you know, in some cases it's not too offensive, but we also have the luxury of doing multiple takes and alternate takes. Um, so we can decide certain things we could decide in the edit. Can I ask, Nick, how did you two first come to know each other? Because you mentioned sending that one page sort of spec to David. So how did you first come to know you could send him that? You know, how far back does it go with you? Uh, 20, I think around 2015 or 2016. So I... Uh, Julia Davis and I had written a pilot about morning television for Channel 4, which David had, had not by chance, but it was sort of through Sony Studios who were maybe going to finance a show if we got picked up for a series. David had seen it as a result of that. And and I remember the producer telling me, oh, David Schwimmer's going to call because he he really liked the show and he just wants to talk talk to you about it. And and yeah, that was kind of an incredible moment. And then David came over and did some workshops, sort of some improv workshops with Julia and I. I think David and Julia had had met before, collaborated on something um, prior to then. And um, we just all had, you know, a real great time. That that show never, you know, never, never went to series. But but David and I had stayed in touch. And I remember David saying, listen, if you, you know, if, if there's ever an, an idea you have that, you know, could justify an American kind of coming over and, you know, it, it not feeling sort of shoehorned in that kind of way, you know, do let me know. And, you know, we, we just kind of got on so well. And we particularly enjoyed in improv playing with the kind of status dynamic of 
David being this quite alpha, brash American and me being this quite, you know, diminutive, shy British guy. That really sort of formed the basis of the Jerry Joseph relationship that, that, that is intelligence. Sorry, I still get PTSD from my time in Afghanistan. You never served in Afghanistan. No, I know, but the drone footage I saw was very realistic. How much data was compromised? Uh, yeah, mostly odds and sods, really. Uh, metadata from the mill server. They did manage to capture a tiny bit of Mary's internet browsing history, sadly. Oh, no. Please tell me none of that was sensitive. No, apart from I have been looking online for a new bra. Really? What type? Well, just a brown one. Yeah, baby. So I had a script commission from Expectation who produced a show. So I, I wrote a kind of page outline of, of the idea and I sent it to David just directly because I, you know, I had David's email and he was like, yeah, yeah, when are we doing it? And I was like, oh, well, we've got to get a full commission. We've got to get a commission first. Um, but yeah, and, and, and Sky kind of came in and, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword in a way because they commissioned a, a series and, you know, this was the first series that I was going to write on my own. And, you know, in some respects, I kind of wish we had a, a pilot because, you know, you get to try out, you know, different, you know, different things and work out what relationships are going to work well and so on. But I'm so super proud of that first series. You know, I, I think it, it was so much fun as well to, to do. And we have such a, a brilliant ensemble Jane Stannis, Sylvester Latuzel, Elliot Salt, you know, I could Well, Sylvester Latuzel's a great Shakespearean state actress. I mean, I went to see her as a student, so I was delighted yeah. to see that, you know, as a cast, it's really interesting selection. Yeah, really works. yeah. they're all, they're all yeah. fantastic, really. Yeah, they're just incredible. But but this, this next season, season two, I honestly couldn't be more proud of because I feel like we've absolutely, you know, found our groove in terms of the way we collaborate, the, the sort of... I guess that sort of shorthand that maybe David was sort of expressing that you kind of end up having in a in a company that was obviously there from the off because we'd all filmed the first series together already and it was it was super fun. I've really enjoyed the episodes of series two that I've watched so far as well. Oh, and I think it's interesting, as you say, the character that you play, David, you know, the kind of American brash sort of NSA guy, it sort of brings a bit of the shadow of the idea of um, you know someone who's come from something big in America, whether that's literally a sitcom or it's, you know, literally an intelligence agency, it sort of plays with all those ideas about an American in a British comedy, doesn't it? It does. It does. And the American arrogance, <laughs> I mean, um, which, uh, which exists, you know, the, the idea that, you know, so, so many folks in America, you know, are like America first without ever having been out of the country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a kind of, at least my character represents a kind of American patriotic ignorance and uh, naivete. So, well, you're clearly having great joy in playing with it. I have just a couple of questions that are related to friends, which I think follow on from it. One is when I was filming a documentary series about Islam and feminism, I was filming in Cairo. This was about 2002. And I saw a cafe that was called Friends and it looked inside, it was two tiers. And they had reconstructed from watching the TV show. They'd matched furniture, everything. Don't ask me about the copyright payments to NBC. But, and I went in and I found a group of people. Then we did a whole set of interviews with these young adults in Egypt about their, their relationship with American culture. And so, one, I was fascinated by the global reach of this show, which, you know, in some of its themes was pretty adult for its day, pretty daring for its day. But it also made me think about the way humour translates 
perfectly, certain kinds of humour. And that show had it. And I wondered if there was, because you talked about how you would all bring things to those live recordings and try them out and see what worked. Is there one that you're particularly proud of? And you think that episode, that thing, which is which is David's, you know, favourite or anything? <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, just from one of two hundred thirty-six, there must be one that just comes to the top of your head. Uh, wow. Um, I mean, I have I have favorite episodes, favorite moments, if that's what you're asking. But that that would but, do. Um, I mean, what you were saying about the global reach of it, yeah, I've, I, it's really moving to me and really meaningful to know. And I, I've been approached by a lot of young people from all over the world who say, "I learned English watching your show." or that it's empowered a lot of women um, in different countries to like just have the idea as Monica proposed to Chandler that, oh, a woman can propose. You know what I mean? Or it's empowered a lot of uh, young gay people uh, or people who are you know, struggling with their gender and their uh, sexual orientation. It's given them uh, more perspective and, and kind of um, giving them the, the idea that they can own who they are, which hearing that from a lot of young people is really, I mean, incredible to think that we were just trying to make people laugh. And then <laughs> to know that it's had that effect is really a credit to the writing more than anything. Do you have, you said that the, you think you have favorite episodes. I mean, I, I love the one God, I can't remember the title of it. It might be the one with the jellyfish. I'm not sure, but the one where Rachel and Ross first kiss, I thought that was a very strong episode. I also like when, you know, the one with the, I don't remember what it's called, the episode, but the one where they got back together, but he Ross didn't read Rachel's letter because it was 18 pages front and back and he fell asleep <laughs> reading it, but was caught and it explodes and they have a fight, basically. The famous kind of we were on a break episode. She wants me to take responsibility for everything that went wrong in our relationship. I mean, she goes on for five pages about, about how I was unfaithful to her. We were on a break! <laughs> oh my God, if you say that one more time, I'm gonna break up with you. <laughs> were they on a break? Yeah, without question. Just checking. Come on now. <laughs> One other question, and I want to ask you first, David, and then Nick, is you'll know that Friends is getting watched by a whole new generation of viewers. And there's been even news coverage about aspects of it which seem dated, notably how rare it was to see a character that was a person of colour. How do you look at it now? And I wonder, do you think about how something like that, if it was being attempted now, might be done differently? Listen, I, I was very aware of it on the show that there were a lot of, Things I was aware of, and and one of them was that was that that the very it wasn't really truly representative of New York and and the entire you know incredible diversity of of this city that I live in and love, and I I I think I've already you know made this known, but I Rachel and Ross with when they were dating other people when when the focus wasn't on her I really you know made it known that I want Ross to date women of color. So there were several conversations and then auditions and, you know, thinking finally he had a relationship. Um, Aisha Tyler was uh, a woman, uh, African-American woman that uh, Ross dated, had a relationship with. But 
you know, was always on my mind, again, the way I was raised, um, but also to rep represent like their religion, which is a big thing that, you know, Ross and Monica were Jewish. And, <laughs> and it was very rarely kind of dealt with. But luckily, when we could raise it, it was dealt in a very memorable way, whether during the blackout, Joey would, I think it was that episode, he would use the menorah, which he didn't even understand what it was, but he was using it to like, with candles, because we had no power, or the holiday armadillo, which Ross wanted his son to understand that to, the idea of Santa Claus is so iconic and so proliferates our entire culture um, that he wanted his son to have a kind of a Jewish hero or a Jewish icon. I'm the holiday armadillo. <laughs> I'm a friend of Santa's and he sent me here to wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Those were moments that I thought were impactful and memorable, but Listen, it's a challenge for the writers, too, because you're on a network show and there were certain certain things and certain agendas uh, and, certain, and, frankly, a lot of limitations that you, you know, about what you can do, what you can say, what you can talk about, what, what you can show. Luckily, those have gotten better uh, rather than, well, I have to say, certain areas have gotten better and are getting better in terms of representation of people of color and uh, gender and sexual orientation. But it's interesting to me that you still can't say a lot of stuff, uh, language, on network television at least, not streamers, but on network television, language is still very, very tightly monitored. And religion. You can't really joke about religion and certain, certain things. So I think that's... Uh, that's interesting. Which brings us to you, Nick, and how, you know, in writing this and in looking at your previous work as well, you absolutely don't shy away from playing. I mean, you know, intelligence deals with terrorism and all the things that go with it and all the sensitive areas. So I'm fascinated to know from your point of view as a writer, as a performer, and as someone who, you know, you know, you've got the name Muhammad, even if you're not actually of Muslim heritage, whatever people might think from seeing your name. Tell me as as a as a person in comedy how you think things are now and how you push at any boundaries or limitations? That's a good question. I think, you know, when I, when I was starting out in comedy, I kind of made a real point of um, actually not mentioning race at, at all, actually. And I still feel quite passionately this way, that I think the, the, a true indication of equality, and I, I've said this uh, before I did like a Twitter thread about it, but that you know, there are a lot of broadcasters and, and, and networks, you know, who are, who are rightly putting money into sort of diverse programming and sort of special, special funds for sort of diverse writers and so on. But, but, but for me, it feels that a true indication of equality will be when diverse writers, and I don't just mean talking about race, but in terms of sexuality and, and, and so on, don't have to specifically just write about, you know, just because I am a, a writer of colour doesn't mean I have to write about sort of, you know, Growing up in '80s Yorkshire, when you know there was racism, things like that, you know, it shouldn't it shouldn't mean that I just have to write about that. I should be able to write about being an air traffic controller or or an intelligence officer, which is terrific. Or an intelligence, you know, yeah, you know, all the stuff that white writers get to write about. It shouldn't just be that the 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 minority groups have to write about their minority things, right? <laughs> so that that for me 
I'm quite passionate about that. And um, for a while, I didn't sort of really touch this sort of subject of race because I sort of thought almost wanted to make a point of I'm, I'm a writer. I happen to be of color. But I'm not writing about those things. But with intelligence and I guess as, as I've got older and I'm a dad and, you know, obviously I've experienced racism I'm fortunate enough, I wouldn't say that I've experienced it as much as some people. And, you know, where I grew up, it was very sort of multicultural. And, you know, my dad's black, my mum's white. And, you know, I've got a surname of Mohammed, but I'm not Muslim. And, you know, so there was lots of sort of things sort of feeding into this kind of quite sort of almost a neutral identity uh, as a result. But, but yeah, as I, you know, particularly writing intelligence, because it felt really apt to tap into some of the the language that was coming, particularly, you know, that at the time of writing intelligence, Trump was the US president. So, you know, all of this stuff was really kind of rife. It felt correct that Jerry should, you know, you know, have his attitudes towards women and his, you know, his, his, his very present xenophobia and so on. It, it, it felt, it felt the right, the right kind of uh, subject area to sort of I guess, put my stamp on some of that. I've actually really enjoyed doing that. You know, it has opened my eyes to kind of lots of lots of things. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole sequence where they effectively racially profile someone. One of the things I've started to realize is that it's much easier doing this when you have color photos. Gosh, that's a very diverse bunch, isn't it? Thank you. Well, whether it's a bit too diverse. Okay, so what I've done here is assimilate all the data from the program along with Tuba's trace matches and combine that with an algorithm that basically mimics my own gut instincts. Anyway, taking all of that into account, these are our top six suspects. My money is on Abdullah uh, blah, blah, blah. And he's a resident in the UK? Yeah, I guess as much as Joseph is resident in the UK. I am resident in the UK. We all get to, as, as all the different, you know, the, the five sort of core characters all get to kind of chip in on their attitudes towards race. And, you know, a lot of the time, so the characters who, who you would not define as racist or having sort of xenophobic attitudes do sort of show themselves up as being, I guess, quite ignorant. And I, I've, you know, I find the awkwardness of that really fun because I guess I've experienced some of that. You know, I've, I've had, you know, people who, who, who aren't racist and who, you know, have conversations with me where they are just sort of treading this really fine line of trying not to offend but saying a point of view that could be construed as offensive. And, you know, it's, it's a really fun area to play in. And because I am a person of colour, I get to play in that area more than, say, if a white writer was writing about those subjects. And uh, for me, that's been really, really, yeah, just really fun. And uh, I, I still enjoy it now. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. And I can see your friendship comes across so well. It's been such fun talking to you. David Schwimmer and Nick Mohammed. thank you both so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Samara.